Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Karen, for ministering in music. Let's pray together, and then we'll interact with one of the psalms. Father, we thank you that we can talk to you. We thank you that you've given us your word. As we think about the psalms, many times the psalmists are expressing their thoughts, their feelings to you. And it's our desire, Father, as we interact with your word, not to be hearers only, but also doers. So we understand what the psalmist says. May we see its practicality in our life. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. going to describe several individuals. I'm not going to give names because if I gave names, you would relate to them immediately. And I not always feel it's wise to mention names of public people. But I'm thinking of an individual that has been in the national scene for many years. This individual seems to do well in spite of all kinds of evil things that he has done on a national scene. He walks away from those things, and it seems like he just goes on with life, and he's abundantly blessed in terms of material things, position, and status in life. And there's a close friend of his that also seems to be do, does everything wrong, but turns around and walks away from it, and people speak well of the individual, and they just seem to be prospering in terms of material things, in terms of status, and people look up to them. And sometimes I have been tempted to say, Lord, something's not right here. I've lived for you for many years, and I've never had what they have had. I also think of another individual, and if you watch TV at all, at least I've seen this individual on TV, TV when I've been to the doctor's office, lives an evil, ungodly life, contrary to God's design, but is well-known, well-recognized, and praised by many, many people. How can such an evil person like that seem to do so well, people seeking advice from that individual? Has that ever crossed your mind to be envious of the prosperity of evil people? Do you wonder if it is worth seeking holiness and living a life surrendered to the Lord when you don't seem to do as well as some of those who live evil? Why does my own spiritual neighbor prosper, but I barely make it? Has that ever gone through your mind? I've been in and out of the hospital. But Barb does well. She's never been sick in her life. And she does what she wants, hurting people and living an evil life. Why? Does it bother you that a sports jock in school who has good grades and is very popular but you seek God, 
And you may not be popular, you're just a nobody. Psalm 73, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, describes the struggle that the psalmist faced as he envied the arrogant and saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's nothing new under the sun, no new struggle under the sun. And as we think about this psalm, we find that there's a structure in the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, we find the experience and the belief of the psalmist. Then he talks about the prosperity of the wicked in verses 4 through 12. And then his personal reaction in verses 13 through 17. That is his reaction to the prosperity of the wicked. Of the wicked. And then he shares the affirmation of God's justice. He's kind of building. And then as you look at the latter part of the psalm, in verses 21 and 22, he, he, he evaluates his reaction. We see the rea- evaluation of the psalmist's reaction to the prosperity of the wicked. Then we see in verses 21 through 26, the desire of the godly, the desire of the psalmist, And that ties in with the prosperity of the wicked. In light of the prosperity of the wicked, he's made an about shift. And he wants to respond in a certain way. And then he closes the psalm in verses 27 and 28 with his experience and his hope. The psalm is a prayer arising from the anguish coming from observing the freedom of the arrogant in the wicked. The psalmist deals with his thinking, his emotions, until he becomes disoriented. And then he comes to reorienting vision. The belief in God's justice is what kind of brings him back on target. The psalmist experiences a sense of joy and freedom when he comes back on target in his thinking. The problem of the arrogant. The problem of the prosperity of the wicked has no clear resolution. But we find in how the psalmist responds some good input in just living well in our world. The overall theme of the psalm is God's goodness. God's goodness. God's faithfulness in the midst of personal anguish over the prosperity of the arrogant and the wicked. God's goodness, God's faithfulness in that. The psalm was written after the psalmist went through the experience. He was envious of the arrogant, envious of the wicked. Was on a slippery slope. But he came to see God, came to see the eternal destiny of the arrogant and the wicked. He got back on target, and then later on he writes about his experience. In verses 1 through 3, we find his experience and his belief. Let's read those verses together. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
In verse 1, the psalmist is establishing God and who he is. God is a God to covenant people. God is good to Israel. God had a covenant with Israel. You go back to Moses, the Mosaic covenant. You look at the Abrahamic covenant. He made a covenant with them. God was good to his covenant people. To those who are pure in heart, God is good to those who walk with him, seek purity, seek a sensitivity to him. But notice in verse 2, and I don't know if you write in your Bible, but if you do, by the word but, you can put contrast. In verse 1, God is described. In verse 2 and 3, we find the psalmist being described. But, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. This past winter, I was out here in the parking lot, and I was going to come down to enter the basement. And on the parking lot, it's kind of level. There's gravel there, and everything was fine. And I looked at the blacktop there, and I thought, that's fine. I took the first step, and just like that, didn't even have time to think. My feet went up for under me, and I hit those blocks that Josh had laid there. And I get up and I thought, I think I'm okay. And I thought, boy, my side hurts. And I, think, I thought, I don't think a rib was broken. It wasn't painful enough, long enough. But it was a slippery slope. Just like that, I was down. The psalmist says, as... For me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Why? Verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's not talking about a physical fall. He's talking about a mental fall, a belief fall, an attitude fall, an outlook fall. I had almost slipped when I envied. The idea of envy is being upset at where someone else is in life because you're not there. Proverbs 23, 17. Proverbs 24, 1 and 2 talk about the fact that we shouldn't envy the wicked. But here the psalmist says, I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is an arrogant person? An arrogant person is one who lives independent of God. I don't need God. So sufficient. Envy of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity's success. Life going well for the wicked. And the life going well is described in verses 4 through 12. And the wicked are those that are set in a direction. If God is here, they're set going this way. They're going the opposite direction. But I almost slipped when I envied the arrogant, the proud, the haughty, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's read together verses 4 through 12 where he talks about the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens coming to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. I almost slept when I envied the arrogant and saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he describes them. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. You ever stop and observe that it seems like some arrogant, wicked people do quite well physically? I can mention a couple of names now. I'm not going to. A well-known people. And I think they've lived evil lives. They've been proud, arrogant, self-sufficient. And they probably haven't been to a doctor in 50 years. He's describing them. Bodies are healthy and strong. Verse 5, they are free from the burden strung common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Where do the burdens come into mankind? We have physical burdens, we have relational difficulties, we have financial difficulties, and so on. And he says, the arrogant, the wicked, they're free from those burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, in verse 6, pride is their necklace. They don't necessarily walk around this way, but, oh, look at me. Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Look what I have. I did this. I was just reading in a news magazine this week about an individual who is paid up to 750000 for one speaking engagement. The response of that individual indicated a lot of pride. They closed themselves with violence. How much violence takes place behind the scenes that no one ever knows about on the part of the arrogant and the wicked? If you look at the history of our valley, and it's not limited to our valley, you will find that arrogant Wicked people have had others killed, but no one ever knew who did it. No one knows the mastermind behind it. You say, how do you know? Read the history of our valley. It's not limited to our valley. But pride is their necklace. Verse 7, from their calloused hearts comes iniquity. And again, we could spend time on a couple of those words, but we won't. But a calloused heart is a hard heart. There's not a sensitivity to God. And because there's not a sensitivity to God, there's that iniquity, that evil. 
the evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read what happens in our world and I think, how'd they figure that out? I couldn't even think that way. Some of the tortures that have taken place in the world by proud, arrogant people have it down to a science of how they can torture someone but not kill them. They scoff and speak with malice. The idea of malice is to tear down, find fault, shred someone to pieces. They scoff, they speak with this malice and their arrogance. They threaten oppression. You better do what I want or I'll get you. Then they threaten that oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. The proud, the arrogant claim to be God at times. They seek to control the earth. So in verse 10, therefore the people turned to them and drink up waters in abundance. There are personalities in our country today that people just sit and glued to what they have to say. And anything out of his mouth or her mouth, they take it in. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Oh, so-and-so said it. It's got to be right. They say in verse 11, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Does God really know what I'm doing? Does God really care? He doesn't know. He doesn't care. He doesn't have knowledge. I'm in control. I can do as I please. So he says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. You ever hear the phrase, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer? Some of the wealthiest people in the world many times are the most arrogant and wicked. The psalmist is wrestling with this. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. God, what's going on? They go through life good, and there's no problem. Question. I'm not looking for an answer from you. Thought question. Who do you envy? Who do you envy? Who are you dwelling on? Is it some student at school? that does well. They seem to get good grades without even studying. Their parents give them all that they want. But yet, they're just evil at heart. And you think, if only, this isn't fair. Is it some political figure that you're just ready to tear to shreds? 
They're on your mind a lot. Boy, they just, it's not, I'm not going to try to finish all that, finish all that. You're just angry at them. You envy. Beware of dwelling on those who have it better than you. That is from your perspective. Because you end up walking in them rather than in the Spirit. In verses 13 through 17, we find the psalmist's reaction. Let's read together. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. I have, if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me to enter the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Can you picture, have you ever been at the point, in vain, it's been worthless obeying God. Here I am, I try to do right, I try to please God, I honor Him, I obey Him, and look at how so-and-so gets blessed, and I don't get it. It's worthless. I've washed my hands in innocence. Why obey God? It's in vain. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Lord, these wicked people have healthy and strong bodies. They're free from the burdens coming to man. They're not plagued by human ills. But God, all day long I've been plagued. I've been burdened down. Every morning I've been punished. You deal with me. You correct me. These people just go on living. It's not right. Verse 15, if I had said thus, or if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. It seems in verse 15, the psalmist didn't want to verbalize his thoughts when he was battling. Because if he shared his thoughts, he would have been betraying God's people. So Zach gets up next Sunday morning to speak, and he says, I just want you to know, I've really had a battle this week. In fact, I'm going on, it's, I'm in it right now. I'm ready to give up on God. In fact, I think I'll give up on God. Bye. And he walks out. That's where the psalmist is at this point. He says, when I was going through this battle, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He would have been walking away from God's people. He would have been walking away from what he had believed and taught. He would have become a proud island. He would have followed the ideology of self-sufficiency affluence, and autonomy. He's sharing his battle.
years ago, I went through a battle, and I've shared some of that along the way. But there was a point in time I came to God, and I didn't share this with people. I was like the psalmist, you know, I don't want to betray God's people. But I said, God, I'm fed up with life. Physically, I'm fed up with life. Get me out of here now. I'm tired of suffering physically. I came through that. God was greater. But I carried it. And that's where the psalmist is. He says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. God, how can this wicked person be so blessed? At least it looks blessed materially. They don't have any physical problems. They got all this wealth. They have good relationships. People seek their counsel. And here I am having all kinds of problems. It didn't make any sense to him. He's confessing his struggle. But I love verse 17. To enter the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He's battling, he's struggled. The length of the battle, the struggle is not given. But he finally came to the point when he looked at things from God's perspective. He looked at God's justice and realized that evil, proud, arrogant people will never be victorious in the long run, in the long term. Walter Zimmerly observes, and I quote, Faith is assailed by its inability to comprehend God's order in the experience of everyday life, finds its way to the bold confidence which confesses that it will cleave to God as its portion even when the heart and body fail. End of quote. The psalmist is coming back to God and saying, God, I need to cling to you. I need to look at things from your perspective. When I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. The turning point is in verse 17. Just as Job 38 through 41 is a turning point for Job when God gave him his little quiz and then he repented. So what happens? Verses 18 through 20, we find that the psalmist is affirming God's justice. Look at verse 18. Surely you place them on, a slippery, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream, when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Notice what he says about them. Surely you place them on a slippery slope. 
This is God. The psalmist is saying, surely you, God, you placed these people on a slippery slope. It's black ice. They don't even see it. And just like that, there's judgment. You cast them down to ruin. You cast them down to devastation. How suddenly they are destroyed. And the idea of destruction is not ceasing to exist, but to waste. Horror caused by judgment. An object of hissing. And he says they're swept away by their terrors. Now this is minor in contrast to what the psalmist is describing. But when we were flying to Guatemala one time, or coming home it was, the only time we were in Guatemala, family got separated from my family and was sitting beside a gal. And, uh, you know, the engine started revving. And as the engine started revving, I saw her go. And then the plane started to move. And then I saw her. And as you took off the ground, I thought, this poor lady going to make it. And we got talking some. And I thought, there was terror in her eyes. She was scared. The wicked and the arrogant, the psalmist says, they're swept away by their terrors. See, the psalmist is not saying when this will happen, but it's certain that it will happen. And then notice in verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. As a dream when one awakes. Dreams are short-lived, and they're not real. Do you ever have a bad dream, and you think, when you get awake, boy, glad that wasn't real? Well, it's the reverse here. The arrogant and the wicked, what's happening to them? They're having a good life. But the psalmist says it's like it's a dream for them, because when they awake, you will despise them. Waking up is reality for them when judgment comes. Reality is coming. The Lord is acting. You will despise them as fantasies. What's a fantasy? It's an image, something that's not going to be real. The way they have lived is a fantasy. It's really not real because they've lived only in the present. Now stop and think. In verses 4 through 12, the psalmist described them as having struggle-free life, healthy bodies, free from common burdens, not plagued by human ills. He also described them as being proud, violent, calloused hearts, evil conceits, scoff, they speak with malice, they're arrogant, their mouths claim, we're great, they claim no accountability. And they have increased wealth. But please see everything on the left as a slippery slope. 
Our world pursues a struggle-free life. Our world bombards us with, have a healthy body. Our world bombards us with, be free from the common ills that humans have, not plagued by human ills. That's where the arrogant and the wicked are. But see that as a slippery slope when that is pursued. They look good temporarily, but it doesn't change the nature of them. See, our timing is different than God's timing. It's a slippery slope. On the lighter side, it's kind of like me going into the grocery store, walking down the potato chip aisle and buying a bag of chips, nine or ten ounces, I forget which size it is, the kind that I like. And on the way home, I open the bag and I start to eat it, eat them. And I get home and I think, these are really good, and I continue to eat. And I continue to eat. And after a while, I say, hmm, the bag's almost empty. I think I could eat that many, but I'll pay for it very, very greatly for the next day. What are the arrogant and wicked people that are enjoying their chips, their slippery slope, if you please, for a short period of time? And then there's a judgment coming couple of questions, and again, these are thought questions. Why do we dwell on people who are on slippery slopes? Why do we dwell on people who are on slippery slopes? We'll sit and be glued to the TV, and it may be someone talking that is on a slippery slope. And people will just drink that in. Why do we pursue slippery slope items as believers? Oh, God, have a healthy body. Not opposed to taking care of your body, but we can pursue that too hard. Why do we watch and listen to people on slippery slopes? Why do we watch and listen to people on slippery slopes? Why do we encourage our children to pursue slippery slope items if we do? The psalmist goes on, verses 21 and 22, the evaluation of his reaction. Verse 21 and 22, when my heart was greed and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Boy, the psalmist is saying some loaded things there. When my heart was grieved, when I'm looking at the arrogant and envy in them, when I see the prosperity of the wicked, my heart was grieved. Now, the word grieve means to be fermented and sour. My heart was grieved. My spirit was embittered. The word spirit comes from kidney, which refers to one's inner being. Embittered is sharpening something to hurt. So here we find in the psalmist a grieved heart, a sour, fermented heart, a spirit, an inward person 
that is sharpened to hurt others. And then he says, I was senseless. The idea of senseless in the Hebrew is to burn. It involves fire. He says, I was ignorant. Means not be able to discern that which is right. Looking only at the present, not the long-term perspective. And he says, I was a brute beast before you. Fools are compared to brute beasts. Now the psalmist is describing himself. He says, when I was envious, as I looked at the arrogance, arrogant people and the prosperity of the wicked, I was greed, my spirit was embittered, I was senseless, I was ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Envy influences us to the core of our being. See, the psalmist was on a slippery slope. He almost fell. or moving towards a slippery slope. But what happens? Look at verses 21 through 26. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 23 through 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom I have in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart. In spite of the drift of the psalmist, the Lord brought him back on target. It reminds me of Philippians 1. He who has begun a good work in you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to work out his will and purpose. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, where the Lord disciplines. Here's one of God's kids moving towards a slippery slope, and God deals with him. He comes back around, and in verses 23 through 26, we find the first statement made in each verse, and then the second statement amplifies it. He says, I was a brute beast before you, and goes on, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Man, isn't that encouraging? He just got done saying, my heart, my spirit was embittered, my heart was grieved, I was senseless, I was ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you, and you hold me. By my right hand. What grace. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you take me into glory. In this life, while others are on a slippery slope, you're guiding me with your counsel. And then you're going to take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth. And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Look at the contrast. Those in the slippery slope, they're going to be cast down to ruin, but I'm always with you. Their sudden destruction, they're going to be swept away by terrors. 
but you guide me with your counsel. They're dreams, or as a dream when one awakes, that's a slippery slope. Whom do I have in heaven but you? The Lord despises those who are in a slippery slope. But my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. Do you see God written all over the psalm? Do you see God's grace written all over the psalm? Do you see human frailty written all over the psalm? Where the psalmist became envious of the arrogant and the wicked. He almost slept. But God in grace works in his life. And I might say he comes to his senses. Yet I'm always with you, God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you take me into glory, and so on. Then he wraps up the psalm with experience and hope. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. After he's been through this experience, he shares his experience, he writes the psalm. And as many of the psalms, he contrasts, those who are far from you will perish. Those in the slippery slope, the proud, the arrogant, evil, will perish. You're going to destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But, notice the word but, that contrast. As for me, it is good to be near God. I made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. You ever been down the slippery slope of the psalmist? Where you envy the prayer, the arrogant, the wicked. You look at their lives, but God in grace brought you back on target. We'll never fully resolve the issue of the prosperity of the wicked, the arrogance that comes with it. We can just give up trying to resolve that. And say, God, I want to follow you. And in light of this psalm, I would encourage you to focus on the eternal, not the present. See, the psalmist in the early part of the psalm was focusing on the present. He was looking at how well <clears throat> the arrogant did and the prosperity of the wicked. But then in verse 17, he stepped back and saw the eternal till he entered the sanctuary of God. If you look at life only in the present, when we do that, we lose perspective. But if we look at life from the eternal, it gives a much different perspective. We're not called to do anything about the arrogant, about the wicked. 
who are celebrities, who may be in politics and so on, were to draw close to the Lord and rest in Him. The Lord is stable long-term. When tempted to go the slippery slope and envy those who have so much, remember, the psalmist says, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your eternal counsel or with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory and so on. Rest in God. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you're stable over the long haul. You're unchanging. And at times, Father, we are tempted to follow the pattern of the psalmist. Some of us have been down that road, but in grace you brought us back on target. Thank you for working in our lives. And in light of who we are as humans, I would close with the doxology that Jude had at the end of his book as he was dealing with false teachers and encouraging people to stay on target. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.